This talk was given by Susan Sayan Wilder at Zen Mountain Monastery. Sayan is a senior lay student in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about our retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org. Thanks for listening. These teachings that we are encountering this week are precious, profound, and clear. If this talk helps you, it's the teachings that are speaking for themselves. If they are confusing in any way, that is saying talking. And I apologize in advance for any lack of clarity or confusion that may get in the way of the teachings speaking for themselves. For me, dedicating this talk is very important. We are all where we are today because of the generosity of others and because we are the recipients of so much good fortune, in particular, to have encountered this dharma. This talk is dedicated to my children who have supported me endlessly in my training over the years as they had to figure out how to compensate for mom going on retreat while other mothers showed up, drove carpool, went to games, and helped with homework. And to my husband, Sanjo, who co-created our family life and supported and still supports my practice and with whom I have shared this dharma forever. As many of us know too well, there is not yet a great deal of acknowledgement or support for fathers or mothers leaving their children at home while they practice and train in the dharma. Training, real training, requires a significant commitment from the parent who desires to practice. You can't do this from home. And the parent desiring to practice needs a very significant network who will cover and attend to the endless details of family life while he or she is away on retreat. Personally, I remember feeling like it took the energy of session to set in place attending session. It was so challenging and stressful. This being said, I am endlessly grateful to my husband and children. I want to make sure you all understand that my family did not often feel particularly happy about me leaving and going to Sashin. And um, let's say there was a lot of mess around it all. However, no one drew a line in the sand and said, stop going. So because of all the support I received and practice I was able to do, we have all thrived as a result of this precious dharma, and in particular, this place of practice. In addition to my family, I would like to express my boundless gratitude to my teacher, Shugam Roshi. The debt of gratitude we all owe our teacher's unending vow, manifesting 
with his life of service and practice can never be repaid. And I would like to express my gratitude to all the teachers and teachings I have had the good fortune to be offered over the years. Before I begin my talk today, I would like to make a comment. (laughs) I want to make sure everybody understands that we're in a Zen training center. And what I speak about may not be particularly Zen. There is only one Dharma, one Dharma. And there are many, many, many teachings and various skillful means that come from the teachings. So it's really important to feel that the Buddha, in his infinite wisdom, compassion, and generosity, taught many, many, many different teachings. Through his kindness and wisdom, he looked out at us and saw how different we all are, that we all have different inclinations, capacities, and personalities. The teaching Shugamoshi offered us yesterday on mindfulness, on guarding our mind, is the bedrock of Buddhist meditation. For some of us, our personality is such that we need reinforcements and more help in cultivating and sustaining the mindfulness that Shugamoshi spoke of. For those of you who know me, you know that I am one of those individuals that need more help to strengthen my practice and commitment to keeping myself to myself. So if those in the room find that these practices that I'm sharing with you today are helpful, I am really glad that you can bring them into your life. And I'm really, really happy to get to share them because they've been so helpful to me. But for those of you who actually didn't need any reinforcements, I hope you find this talk enjoyable, and please leave it all at the door. I would like to begin this talk with words of the Buddha from a sutra known as the King of Samadhi Sutra, the words of the Buddha. Know all things to be like this, a mirage, a cloud castle, a dream, an apparition, without essence but with qualities that can be seen. Know all things to be like this, as the moon in a bright sky, in some clear lake reflected, though to that lake the moon has never moved. Know all things to be like this, as an echo that derives from music, sounds, and weeping. Yet in that echo is no melody. Know all things to be like this, as a magician makes illusions of horses, oxen, carts, and other things, nothing is as it appears. So, we are being taught by the Buddha that nothing is as it appears. So what is it that appears? We are generally convinced we know what we see and that we are correct in our opinions. I was once present when Mingyur Rinpoche gave a teaching on appearances and reality not being what we think. 
As it was so helpful to me, I thought I would share it with you. So, two pencils. Can everyone see? Two pencils. <laughs> Looking at these two pencils, you probably form the idea that one is shorter and one is longer. If you remove one pencil and replace it with another, again, you have an opinion about which is shorter and which is longer, but it's not the same pencil. The one that was longer before is shorter. Now, if I remove this pencil and there is only one pencil, is it shorter or longer? Is shorter or longer in the pencil? Where do shorter and longer exist? How are they created? Can longer be separate from shorter? We require both to have a conviction. Short, long, good, evil, light, dark. We create that distinction in our mind. The example of the pencils reminds us to be curious about the conviction of our thoughts. Our thoughts are not necessarily our friends. Our thoughts deceive us. They tell us we are right when, in fact, it is just our habitual responses of righteousness that are arising. Our habits convince us of the solidity of our thoughts. When we interact with others, is what we are getting so self-righteous and puffed up about true? Really? Is it possible, just perhaps, that we are the tall pencil of the moment next to another pencil that enhances our perception of tallness? Is that tallness real? Is it really worth being self-righteous about our tallness? Can we see that when we are self-righteous, we are creating a sense of separation? We are all, each and every one of us, looking desperately for something to be certain about, something to be sure of. And when we look for certainty, we seek it in that which is born of illusion. This ango, we are studying Dogen's fascicle, refrain from unwholesome action, which is based on the teaching of doing no harm. When we create harm, it is 100% of the time coming out of our solid sense of self, 100% of the time, our feelings of self-centeredness, which are without essence. This self-centeredness is the cause of all of our suffering and the suffering we inflict on each other. When there is a me, there is a you, and there is someone for me to point my finger at and blame. Being generous, doing good, creating no harm. This is at the heart of the Buddhist teachings. In Zen, there is an old story that I think often confuses people. Emperor Wu asked Bodhidharma if he will gain merit for building temples. Bodhidharma says, no merit. No merit? Is Bodhidharma being a nihilist here? I don't think so. No merit is actually a very advanced teaching. So what is Bodhidharma actually pointing to here? 
Bodhidharma is actually speaking of true generosity. He's encouraging the emperor to give without being attached to giving. When we give for the sake of giving, the whole world opens up to us. We have no thought of gain, no expectation of appreciation, no desire at all. To open our hearts like this is to become the human beings we all aspire to be. This is practicing the Buddha way. The Buddha way is expressed in our being generous, considering others, creating good. Generosity softens us so that we feel more at ease and connected. When we feel more at ease and connected, we are able to meditate. Our mind calms and opens, and insight is able to arise. If we are self-preoccupied, angry, perseverating, withholding, how do we imagine our meditation practice will unfold? I want you to imagine for a moment a seed germinating without any sunlight or water. That seed is within all of us, waiting to be germinated. That's what this practice is about. We must cultivate our mind with generosity and kindness so that our innate wisdom is able to sprout from within. The teachings tell us that we are all born innately perfect, each and every one of us a Buddha. Do you believe it? Do you think the teachings are lying? Do you think you're the only one in the room who truly doesn't have Buddha nature? I did for a long time. Buddha nature is our birthright, our inheritance, unconditionally present at birth. And like a diamond, it is indestructible. At death, the body decays, and the nature we are born with, our Buddha nature, is exactly as it is when we were born. This luminous, bright, Cognizant Buddha nature is covered over with our conditioning. Our conditioning, like mud covering a diamond. Tell me, is a diamond worth less because it's covered with mud? To be human is to be shrouded with this mud. We are walking diamonds shrouded in mud. This mud is an accumulation of the five poisons, aversion, attachment, jealousy, pride, and ignorance. These poisons infect us. They poison our lives and relationships, reinforcing our illusion of being separate and independent instead of what is true, which is we are all interconnected and interdependent. 
So where did these poisons come from? If we're all born perfect and complete and we're an indestructible, luminous, bright diamond, where do they come from? These poisons are born of a sense of a solid self, the solid self which is nothing more than a dream. <clears throat> we are dreaming ourselves. These poisons or glaciers fuel disharmony and conflict. Yet, this is part of our humanity. It is our conditioned existence. To be human is to be this fabric of the mud. However, the teachings which exhort us and say over and over again, do no harm and be generous, are not telling us to deny our angry thoughts and feelings. The teachings are not telling us to deny our humanity. There is nothing to be ashamed of whatsoever about whatever thoughts and feelings each of us have. Every single muddy feeling or thought that arises is human. The challenge, the practice, is to recognize them and own them as part of us. When we recognize them and see them as part of us, we won't get hijacked by them. We can acknowledge these feelings as part of us and investigate to see these feelings for what they are, which is empty of substance. Just like the colors of the rainbow in the sky, colorful and empty of substance. When we are able to see these feelings, these clashes or obscurations that feel so solid and real, when we truly see into their nature, they dissolve as the rainbow dissolves in the sky. When our muddy feelings dissolve, no harm is caused no karma is created. These teachings offer us the paramitas as the antidotes, the paramitas, the curative medicine to treat these poisons that cause pain and suffering. These paramitas are our protectors, the protectors that we can turn to when our glaciers show up. They're always with us. The paramitas are generosity, morality, patience, diligence, meditative concentration, and insight. These are the magic bullets that transform our lives. These are the protectors from us creating harm. The paramitas protect us from our conditioned self. When we react in a solidified, self-centered, karmic-creating moment, the paramitas offer us the opportunity to manifest a no-solid self. Just be a paramita. 
The paramitas are a refuge of transformation. This is a practice of alchemy, to transform our poisons into clarity. There is nothing to deny, nothing to push away or let go of. If we act with awareness of our own mind, alchemy manifests. Turn toward the paramitas and you will experience for yourself the transformation of the moment. This is the heart of the practice. So let's pause here and imagine how our life would look if our actions each moment manifest the paramitas rather than the kleshas. I'm sure it doesn't take much to think of the last time we wish we had acted differently. When we were taken over by our glacier of the moment, imagine, just imagine, if in that moment we had become one of the paramitas. This is how we do no harm and how we free ourselves from regret. Doing harm is a habitual condition response arising from the mirage of our solid sense of a separate self. Doing harm can be disarmed by our commitment to our vow of doing no harm. It's actually quite simple, but it's an extraordinary amount of hard work. But incredibly simple. Feelings arise. We allow ourselves to be human by recognizing and accepting the feelings that show up, and we turn toward the paramitas to help us clear away the obscurations, the mud covering our true nature. Harm always arises when we turn our back on ourselves, when we deny our humanity and think we are above or different from anyone else, and we deny having the feelings that we're having. I'm not angry. Each and every one of us feels everything available to the human spirit. spirit. Everything. Not one thing, not one feeling is left out. Denying any part of any feeling puts ourselves and everyone near us at risk. When we deny part of ourselves, then the part that has been denied hijacks our lives and the poisons take over. If we want to change our lives, we must change our habitual reactive selves by looking within. It is deeply humbling to turn the light inward and see. Very humbling, painful. When we understand that every, absolutely every emotion is part of the ocean of our mind, then each and every emotion that arises is seen for what it is. It is a wave. That's all. It's a wave that rises out of the ocean. 
There's nothing to destroy, nothing to let go of, nothing to deny or be ashamed of. It's a wave. When we bring our awareness to it and bring our awareness to it with warmth and open-heartedness, resting in natural ease, allowing whatever arises to be itself without acting on it, the wave sinks back into the ocean and then another wave arises. This is the display of our mind. In Moonbeams of Mahamudra, Dagpotashi Namgil says, Mahamudra meditation has nothing to abandon, no remedy, nothing to, to, nothing to transform, and no transformer. All is magical display of the mind. Awakening occurs by recognizing that the primordially unborn nature, the dharmakaya, is present innately within mind itself. And we awaken by becoming familiar with seeing that. This is the gift of zazen. This is the privilege of what we have here. This is why my gratitude can never be repaid. Developing stability and clarity of mind regardless of what arises, seeing, experiencing for ourselves the ground of reality, the truth of appearances, and what is truly real. This is our gift here. Hogan Sensei has called this the magic kingdom. When we look into our hearts and minds, we are able to see and to experience for ourselves the truth of these teachings. There is no separate permanent self. Everything is interdependent and co-created, and everything is karma, cause and effect. How often do we have to hear these teachings to bring them to life? When I first came here, Daita would teach over and over and over and over and over again, seamless practice, seamless practice, seamless practice. Do we understand that training in session is so we can bring what we do here back to our daily lives? When we are really practicing the path, there is no meditation or post-meditation. The path is our life. We cannot live in formal zazen just sitting. We have to go to the bathroom, eat, take care of our jobs, friends, family. It's endless. We are training here this week so that our life when we leave here is imbued and moistened with heart-mind awareness so we can transform and thrive. When you go home and someone asks you, so how is Sashin? Be sure to pause and look at how you're living at home. Then you'll know how to answer. 
Our suffering, all of our suffering, is caused by believing the illusion that life is permanent, singular, and independent. When we have that point of view, we get brokenhearted, confused, disheartened, and really depressed. This is what happens when we believe things are solid and real. Then we're constantly shocked and dismayed when we are confronted with what life brings. Our way to freedom from this endless cycle of frustration and disappointment is in the training we are doing right here and now, studying the nature of reality, that we are all interconnected, there is no separate self, everything is cause and effect, and nothing is as it appears. When we realize these truths, we encounter for ourselves the liberation the Buddha spoke of. All of us are here because we have had the experience and realization that no matter how we try to organize our lives, put things in place, make things work, find solid ground beneath us, create supportive walls around us, we still come up against the stark reality that in spite of all of our efforts, we get what we don't want and we don't get what we do want. This is just what is true. Everything changes. Nothing is what we thought it was. No one is who we thought or hoped for. There is nothing we can rely on, and everywhere it's unsatisfactory, particularly inside our skin. Until we taste for ourselves the truth of what the Buddha taught, we will be caught in this endless cycle of frustration, disappointment, and confusion. But this is the place where we all begin. That's why we're here. But if we stick around this dharma long enough, practicing sincerely, we discover that we actually have found a gold mine. Truly. It's not the gold mine we had imagined, but one that is richer than we could have ever conceived. And that gold mine is only found by turning the light inward and realizing the empty nature of reality. Through experiencing for ourselves what is actually true, we can free ourselves from this cycle of conflict and dis-ease. I'm a grandmother, a mother, a wife, a daughter, a sister, friend. And so it is endlessly interwoven. But we are all interwoven. We are all in relationship. And these teachings are nourishing in a way we can experience for ourselves as our complicated lives unfold. When we bring these teachings to life, life transforms. These precious teachings offer the opportunity in the midst of it all to transform the mess of our lives 
and the confusion of our minds into the clarity of reality. Unfortunately, though, there is no way to taste this precious practice without actually walking the path. No shortcuts. Wherever we find ourselves, in whatever situation, we are on the path. This is our practice. How we take up what we encounter in our day-to-day life is our practice. There is no other way to taste the truth and reality of these teachings other than to heartfeltly engage with whatever shows up when we least want to. This training gives us the capacity to create a life of meaning and connectedness free of delusion. Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche is quoted as saying, practice is easy when the sun is shining on your back and your belly is full. The training in Sashin is to prepare us for when the sun is not shining so brightly and life shows up in ways we never would have asked for or expected. This practice is to train. It's to train. So our minds and hearts are fully prepared to engage this life however it shows up. For me, it was really so helpful when I realized the teachings explicitly show us that the only difference between ourselves and the Buddha is that Shakyamuni, through realization, cleared away his obscurations while we continue to wander around, as Shugam Roshi spoke of in a talk a couple of months ago, behind a veil of ignorance. The veil we all live behind is the veil of belief in the dream of a solid sense of an independent self and that things are the way they appear. It all feels so real and so uncomfortable We know from experience that there is no place of ease in the solid, separate world each of us dreams. I would like to close with some words from the third Karmapa, Rangjung Dorje, in his Aspiration of Mahamudra Prayer. He says, All phenomena are the illusory display of mind, Mind is devoid of mind, empty of any entity, empty and yet unceasing. It manifests as anything whatsoever. Realizing this completely, may we cut its basis and its root. We have mistaken our non-existent personal experience to be the objects and by the power of ignorance, mistaken self-cognizance to be a self. This dualistic fixation has made us wander in the spheres of samsaric existence. May we cut ignorance and confusion at its very root. Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as meditation cushions, incense, malas, liturgical instruments, books, and more, visit the Monastery Store at monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.